Hi, everyone. This is Martin Willis of the Antique Auction Forum. Welcome to podcast number 98. Both this podcast and our next few podcasts were recorded at the 51st annual original Miami Beach Antique Show, February 2012. I do have to apologize for the sound quality because there's a lot of background noise, which just could not be avoided. This show has always amazed me. It's been considered one of the world's best, and I hope you get a chance to visit it in the future. In this podcast, we speak with dealers at the show, Marco Astrologo on Louis Vuitton, Phil Lark on Amphora Pottery, and Peter Rudolph on Fine Art. Next week's show, we'll be talking with three more dealers. Uh, Also, please forgive our transition clips between guests. I did take it from the Austin Powers movie. Sorry about that. Anyway, here we go. Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. Okay, I'm with Marco, and he has a company named Branded Luxury. And look at all this Louis Vuitton in this. It's amazing. How did you get started? Well, I always liked Louis Vuitton like many other people. And uh, I got across uh, a few uh, interesting pieces of luggages that I that people seem to like it and uh, I start to collect and to buy and sell beside my antique business mm-hmm. and the, uh, the business uh, starts to, uh, to grow and grow and grow right now I have a very extensive yes. collection of very unusual pieces uh, owned by important people at uh, yeah, today, uh, the decorators go crazy for this kind of things. You know, the they do. things that they say, oh, we're going to get a little bit of trunk, or we put it here in the living room, we use yeah. it as a coffee table, yeah. or we put it in front of the bed. Yeah. So in the winter, you got the, the heavy blanket, you put it in, then you pull them out when, yeah. <laughs> when uh, you change the season. And uh, besides the fact that you know, they are getting a, a sh- you know, scarcer and scarcer because yes. they are not uh, yeah. number limited. And uh, the important thing is to find the good quality ones that they are not uh, in uh, bad condition. Right, right. That they don't need uh, to be restored uh, very much because, uh, unfortunately, they are no parts for these kind of things. Do it's people manufacture, people, like, new parts? The, the, or? It's not that Louis Vuitton it doesn't want to bother with the, with the repair. Sure. Yes. They had a, a facility in, uh, in, in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, right now they close it. Before, uh, if you had a bag, if you had a little suitcase, you had to change it, a handle, a latch or something, they used to send it to Los Angeles. But right now they close the facility. So when you want to have something fixed, you go to one of the Louis Vuitton store. They tell you, oh, yeah, well, we'll fix it for you. It would take six or seven months because we had to send them to France yeah. where they're going to fix it. And then you realize what it's going to cost so every time you have to send something like that. Yeah. Send 
money to send, money to get back, yep. and the time involved. The time is right. The, 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 when they tell you that it takes a six, seven, you know, they discourage the people. So you say, all right, never mind. Yep. I find a good uh, a good shoemaker. Perhaps he can do <laughs> a job. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, but yeah. the parts, unfortunately, uh, they are not available. Right. Wow. The Louis Vuitton trunks are made in a certain way with all Louis Vuitton parts, the corners, the rivets, the original latches, and things like that. It's something that you cannot, you 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 cannot find. And even the most, you know, uh, the worst Louis Vuitton trunk that you can find is still have a, a good value. People mm-hmm. likes to have a, something yeah. like that, even right. if it's. A, in really, really bad condition. Yeah. Now we're sitting right. We're sitting right now in um, some Louis Vuitton chairs that were owned by a very famous person that we can't talk about. <laughs> but uh, can you talk about other famous people you've done business with? Uh, well, I uh, I had a, a few people uh, from uh, the movie industry that they bought from me. Yeah. And uh, I'm very happy. Uh, that the quality of the merchandise that I deal in is uh, yeah. primo. I, uh, you know, I buy every day from everybody. But if the trunk or a suitcase or something needs more than 20, 25 uh, percent uh, uh, restoration things, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't touch them because uh, I know that I, I cannot, uh, I cannot have something decent. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the the condition of one of these items, it's. It's paramount, right? It's paramount. Yeah. You can you can buy a trunk for fifteen hundred dollars, and you can buy the same trunk, exactly the same, in splendid condition for fifteen thousand dollars. Wow! And and they won't everything. say a word. Yeah. They won't say a word because uh, compare the merchandise. Yeah. Compare the merchandise. This is mm-hmm. one, and this is another. They are exactly the same. Why this is fifteen thousand, and this is a fifteen hundred? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. because it's the condition. Now, have you seen a piece that you just couldn't believe how good a condition it was in? There are the 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 pieces that they are in very very good condition are the early modern ones. Mm-hmm. There are some very good ones of the forties yeah. and the fifties mm-hmm. because. Uh, Starting from the 50s, people were kind of a lady to uh, travel with such a heavy things. Mm-hmm. You know, the time of the steamer, tra- the yeah. steamer boats uh, was already finished. Right. So, carrying something like that, that you need the two or three people to carry three or four pieces of luggage, yeah. it's, it's, it's not feasible anymore. Yeah. And uh, today, even if somebody wants to travel with a piece of Louis Vuitton, it has to be afraid when they send them on a plane, when they come back down, or they are destroyed, or they steal them. So yeah. who wants to be bothered to, uh, to lose a piece of luggage just to show people that you are traveling with a piece of Louis Vuitton? <laughs> you, know, you invite the people. Yeah. Do they have any carry-on luggage? <laughs> they do have a, Yeah, that's right. These are the best yeah. carry-on luggage yeah. when you leave them unattended for a while. Yeah. <laughs> they they grow... Like- they grow wheels and they uh, they yeah. walk away. <laughs> <laughs> now your wife's involved in handbags. Yes, my wife is involved in a high fashion bag. She's uh, the author of a famous book, and uh, she's the authenticator for uh, Louis Vuitton, for uh, Chanel, for Gucci and Gucci. Yeah. And uh, 
has a very, very good uh, flourish. Now, now, when you brought your trunks here from Philadelphia, is it like really involved in the packing to make sure? Yeah. Yeah. But they, they, they have to be, you know. Do you wrap each one in like in a blanket it has or something? To be wrapped in a blanket because uh, naturally uh, the trunks are made of canvas. So if the canvas wrapped to another piece of canvas, yeah, the uh, the the uh, the paint and all the uh, the idiogram, the LV, the all the other design, yeah. you know, they scratch off, and you cannot you cannot re- replace it. it, it, it Right, it, it's not a restoration that can be done. Now, the early, early Louis Vuitton did not have the LV on it, right? The, they started with the uh, with one kind of a canvas that was called Vuittonite, and uh, the customer could order a different color because the only thing that they had to do just paint them of the color that the the customer wanted, mm-hmm. and they gave it a custom made trunk. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Louis Vuitton started to uh, make trunks in Paris, in the same city, in the 1850-1860, there were already 500 people that were making trunks. So what made him rise above everyone else? Because he wanted to differentiate himself from all the others. Mm-hmm. First of all, with a different design and different idea how to make the trunk. Then he came out with the idea of the LV when he was tired that everybody were copying what he was doing. Mm. So I say that I have to make something that it's only mine and mm-hmm. nobody can do it to replicate. Yeah. So it started with a little checker <laughs> and everybody were paper, were doing the check. <laughs> <laughs> he started with the stripes. Yeah. And immediately everybody were covering the stripes. Wow. So he said, listen, I have to come out with something that people do the camera. So he patented the LV yeah. design. Yeah. And since then, everything went for his way. So mm-hmm. nobody could copy these things here. But then he was an innovator because uh, he had the idea how to make them uh, different uh, from any, any anybody else uh, for the needs of what the people needed. You know, for instance, uh, if a, if a music, musician wanted, uh, a, a, you know, a case for the violin, he used to make a custom-made Louis Vuitton violin case. If somebody wanted to uh, to have a, 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 for instance, a trunk that he could book, put the books like uh, Hemingway did, he mm-hmm. ordered a special. A special uh, Louis Vuitton trunk that he had all his book inside. Wow! In wow. fact, it is a fairly new uh, book that just came out. Louis Vuitton that is called a hundred uh, uh, exceptional uh, book. He'll be right back. Legendary trunks. Legendary trunks. And here you, uh, you can see everything that Louis Vuitton did from the beginning. There are some uh, wow, that's from, a beautiful book from his yeah. from his collection, mm. the Pesaruli, and uh, many many other uh, things. From you see the the the, the, doll, the suitcase for the doll presented to Elizabeth and Margaret of England in 1938. Mm. Then there are some more uh, things. Uh, from uh, 
the royal uh, Prince Yusuf Kamal from Cairo, 1926, which is a very nice little little case with a plate for a picnic. Look at the condition of that piece. I mean, yeah, yeah. this is in the collection. <laughs> yeah. in the collection. And then he made so many, uh, you know, necessary. And, uh, and those are passage. stamped right on the hardware itself, yeah. aren't they? The LB yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh-huh. his name and uh, yeah. How can someone find out a date of their Louis Vuitton? The um, when every single unit has his own serial. Stock number. So uh, okay. uh, today, uh, if uh, you uh, you know mention the number to the Louis Vuitton archive, they might be able to tell you when the item was made. Mm-hmm. But they don't give any more information about who bought the truck. Mm-hmm. They say for uh, privacy reasons. Yep. These people died hundred years ago. Okay, yeah. privacy is already. I mean, but right yeah. now, yeah, I mean, the, the was possibility to get uh, the name of uh, important people that they purchased mm-hmm. the uh, the Louis Vuitton item because they had them personalized with names, uh, with design, and all right. things. But right now, they don't they don't furnish uh, anymore. Mm-hmm. I had uh, I bought a uh, five. Suitcase and a trunk owned by General Douglas MacArthur. Wow. Something from a museum. And uh, I gave them all the information. He says, yes, they were purchased in, in 1947, 48, something like that, when already on. Mm-hmm. But we cannot confirm, yes. and we cannot deny that it was Douglas mm-hmm. MacArthur. I said, can you give me? An idea. I said, sorry, we cannot do it. Yeah, yeah, they just but, don't want to get involved in that. They didn't yeah. want to get involved, but, yeah. uh, you know, they made that, 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 uh, that decision not to involve any more the name of the, of the people. Yeah. So what? how much of an importance does it play to have who owned the trunk? Well, you know, the... the, the the provenance is always important in any in any field. Yes. Especially especially in uh, furniture, for instance, or uh, sure, paintings yeah. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And also the Louis Vuitton, because right now the uh, Louis Vuitton trunk he became a, 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 an antique. It became uh, something that uh, he's given from generation to generation. It's an heirloom. You know, my grandfather left it to me, and I'm going to leave it to my son, to my my nephew, and my uh, my other people. And uh, the value in the last six months, I would say, it must have gone up at least forty percent in the last six months. Wow, that's almost we unheard of. Buy, yeah, we could buy uh, a nice Louis Vuitton trunk for. Uh, Fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars, four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Now you cannot even buy a suitcase for that kind of price. Yeah, yeah. No suitcase. And uh, the value is increasing uh, month by month, year by year. And well, it sounds like you're can... in the right business. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
<laughs> so do you have a website? Yes, I do have the website. It's uh, www.brandedluxury.com. Brandedluxury.com. Okay. Excellent. Well, you know, you've been great to speak with and uh, a real pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm here in a booth with some wonderful amphora, among other things. And I'm speaking with Phil, Phil of Phil and Arlene Lark, and uh, Amphora Art Pottery, and it's O-S-A-R Antiques. How you doing, Phil? Very good. Thank you. So, been in the auction business a long time, and I've never seen such a variety and such unusual pieces of amphora. Not many dealers carry it. And can you tell a little bit about the factory and where it comes from and who the designers were in the beginning? It came out of Austria. started up in 1890 through 1915 were the best years. Um, it was during the New World period. They had a total of uh, five factories, 150 employees, and they had a school to teach technology. And it was during the New World period. And they were very successful. Their craftsmanship and artistry and beyond compare as far as I'm concerned. There have been three books that have come out referencing Amphora. The House of Amphora by uh, Richard Scott. Monster, Monsters and Maidens by uh, Byron Freeland of uh, California. And he has recently come up with what he calls the collector's edition, Monsters and Maidens. And this really encompasses a lot more pictures than what he had in his first book. And this volume was about three times the size of the first book. Okay, can I ask you to speak up a little bit more? <clears throat> and um, anyway, um, they were very successful during that time. And then, of course, in... Uh, 1938, the borders changed. It became Czechoslovakia. And uh, Austria, who had the Germans that were doing the decoration, they had a nationalistic move to uh, have them leave the country. And then it became the Deco period. And this uh, was entirely different decoration. Uh, and by the end of 1939, that was the end of the mm -hmm. um, We've been dealing about 12, 13 years, and um, we've been started out in Czech glass, then Czech pottery, then we got into uh, Czech amphora, and then started getting uh, realizing what came out of Austria that was uh, seemed to be better decoration to our liking. And uh, that's been our mainstay as far as our business. We have uh, bronzes, we have uh, Tiffany, we have uh, various things of this nature. And um, at one time we were having trouble getting more out of it because what we had was uh, being sold and we couldn't get it fast enough as far as replacement. And it seemed like a lot of it was going into collections, and there wasn't much on the market. 
then we made friends with uh, Mr. Scott, who wrote the last book, The House of Nephora. And he bought a huge collection from uh, Wolfgang Schuster in uh, Germany, who had his place decorated in Nouveau. He wanted to change to Deco. So for some reason, the two of them got together, and he bought his collection, brought it over here to do the book. That was his main interest. Um, he got caught up in the, in the mystery of, mystery of uh, Amphora. So uh, it kind of gets under your skin after a while, and mm -hmm. you get some good pieces. And um, anyway, um, he, after he had this collection, was working on his book. He said, um, he had a medical set down. And he said, sometime you're around, I'll give you a deal you can't turn down. Anyway, um, one time we're coming back from a Baltimore show and said we'd swing by and see him. And uh, we went there to see his collection. He really had something. Bottom line, we ended up buying 490 okay. pieces. Wow. So, I didn't even know there were that many in existence. <laughs> fortunately, he still had the packing material. And we really? could utilize that because yeah. it hadn't been that long that he got it from Germany. Yeah. So uh, we bought the whole collection. And wow. And is this what I'm looking at today, some of these pieces? Some of them. Uh -huh. We're down to very few out of that number. We buy off the floor, we buy from other dealers or at auctions. And um, the business of what you see now. Being that Mr. Scott has been there, done that, so to speak, as far as writing the book, first accumulating the collection, writing the book, and then he, uh, uh, like I say, done it. Now he's starting to consign pieces to us, and some of the major pieces that we have. Is that piece right there? That, What's that called? That is called the uh, wood grouse. There is a particular name for it. It's a grouse that is European that was very popular as far as hunters. They almost decimated it, but it is coming back now. Wow. Now that's like a full-size bird right there on top of that base. Yeah. Life-size. Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any books you would recommend for someone to yes. a reference? There are three of them right now. The House of Amphora by Richard Scott. The Monsters and Maidens by Byron Vreeland. And he is as I mentioned previously, has come out with the collector's edition, Monsters and Maidens. We have them both available, so um, if anybody is interested, they can contact us and we can okay. fix them up with them. Now, just one quick question. I'll give out your contact information. Now, I noticed some M4 pieces have a high glaze and a matte glaze on one piece. Was that, like, a common thing? Yeah, it was a practice that they did a lot of times. Again, that was their artistic uh, ability to do it. You see something like this that looks like it's enameling on that grouse. Like, yes, there's a grouse, the same one, but in a different decoration. And that's what's on the board. Yeah. But, uh, and of course, they all carry marks as far as uh, identification of the pieces. Some pieces were done with a transfer such as Paul Doxel or uh, the RSTK transfer. And over time, sometimes they would get obliterated. 
but uh, you talk about transfer marks for identification marks. Mm -hmm. I see. Underglaze or overglaze? Do you know? The marks? Yeah. Uh, they would be over the glaze. Yeah. Some of them were under. Uh, here's an artist, N.K. Nicholas Kanhauser, and that's uh, said under the glaze. Mm -hmm. He was uh, one of the prime uh, artists that did decoration of the decoration of the portrait pieces. Yes, very nice. Yeah. And if you look carefully, right in the center is the remnants of the transfer. I RSTK. see that. Yeah, I see that. And uh, I don't know how familiar are you with transfer? I've cataloged a number of pieces over the years, but. Okay. Yeah. So you're. Uh, You've seen the logo as far as. Yes. Yeah, Greek or consequently became the name of their factory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, thank you so much, um, Phil. And your email address for Phil or Arlene is I M A Lark, L A R K, at AOL.com. That's correct. Thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I'm here with Peter Rudolph. How are you doing, Peter? And the name of your art galleries, McLeese Galleries? That's correct. Can I pronounce it right? That's it? Yeah, got it. I'm from Pennsylvania. How long have you been at this business? Oh, about 25 years, 30 years. Yeah? Yes. And what? how did you get into it? Oh, that's a very long story. Um, I went to college. I studied painting and um, uh, have a master's degree in fine art. And um, I taught school um, at the secondary level in private school for about 10 years. And then um, I uh, found a painting and, uh, on the street in an antique store, and I researched it. And um, I kind of like that whole process of researching and the art history behind it all. And then um, it turned out it was okay, and I sold it, and um, I... Um, started looking for more paintings and that's how all this started yeah that's great how one little thing you found something yeah that's it stumble into the business so do you specialize in a certain type of paintings no i'm pretty much of a generalist all areas european and american european and american old masters all the way through um, i'd say mid 20th century um, american yeah now uh i commented when i came by your booth yesterday on this wonderful painting you have here and it's called the strip dancer is that what it is yeah and the artist a, is actually it's a self-portrait within the image yeah there's a there's a uh, there's a yes exactly it's a, a painting of a stripper i guess we call it some kind of a social realist painting from 1934 by harry o'shiver um it's probably um painted i don't know if it's painted from life but it's represents one of the one of the many um, strip joints in Philadelphia in the 1930s it was painted one of them so um, it's it's a it's a great it's a great painting yeah it's a very interesting image it's, it isn't really for anybody well and the guys faces are just like they would be today in, in the strip club it is very true <laughs> yeah. I mean the, 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 the you know the, the, the stylist and precedent might be somebody 
like every chin who painted. Yes, uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, dancers and you know, uh, uh-huh. in the vaudeville acts in the early uh, 20th century, in the late 19th century. I, I want to say one other thing about another piece you have. That's still like beside it is wonderful. What can you tell me about that? That's painted by an Italian. Uh, his uh, name is Lucchese. Um, he's uh, an Italian painter. And this is what he did, very highly detailed. It's uh, almost like Trump Loy. I mean, just so real to life. It's yeah. Almost photorealistic. And he was, um, this was probably painted around 1900. He was born in 1855 and he died around 1941. But this is in a 19th century um, style. Yeah. And, um, so that's it. And this is um, high attention to detail. Yes, yes. So um, your your booth is very catchy. You have such a variety. Well, it's pretty eclectic. Yeah. Nice impressionist paintings and. Did I explain this painting to you? No, go ahead though. All right, this is a very interesting painting. Chile uh, was painted in Chile by an, an, an American Civil War general uh, in 1867. And at the end of the war, he was um, when he retired from being a general. He. Um, was given a post as an ambassador to Chile, and um, he went down there wow. and he painted this in his spare time. He arrived there in 1866 and he painted this in 1867. Do you know if he did any work during the Civil War? No, he was a very he was a very brutal general. General, I've done some uh, a little bit of uh, research on him. Was he Union? Yes, Union. He was notorious for marching his soldiers into very dangerous battles and having them all be killed off. And, Jeez. Oh, so he survived. Now, His name is Kilpatrick. Kilpatrick. And uh, the does the piece have, other than the work, does it have any significance because of the Civil War? No, it's just the date. You know, that I don't yeah. think there were too many Americans traveling out South America in yeah. the 1860s. Yeah. And um, the, it's a very interesting painting. It's very naive and primitive. And that's the, the main quality. Yes. With the Andes in the background. And I love uh, the Grand Canyon. That's just wonderful light in that painting there. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, yeah. Uh, and that, that painting, the reason, that's a particularly interesting painting because it was exhibited at the Tovar now, which is uh, kind of... Um, what would you call it, like an arts and crafts kind of um, huge cabin that hung over the rim. It was very, very famous, but it really resort. Really wonderful I'm colors in that. I don't know if I'm describing the place correctly, but artists hung out there. There are hung in that building, and this is particularly interesting because that, that's one of the... Uh, the music starting again. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about today's world in the art market. Um, is there some parts of the art market that's doing better than the than others? Like, is there what's the current trend right now? Well, I would say it's pretty much contemporary art um, at this point. Contemporary art is strong. Contemporary art, yes. Uh-huh. It's still strong. I mean, everybody sits on pins and needles until the auctions come around. And, to see what's to happening. To see what's going to go on there. Yes, yeah. In New York. And that's it. The auctions happen a couple of times, really basically twice a year for all of, the, all of this material. 
have major old master sales twice a year, major 19th century sales, and major American sales twice a year, and everybody waits to see what's going to happen there. Um, it's it's uh, pretty much the high the high end of the market is the strongest the strongest part right. of the market. This point yeah, also everybody knows that. And the this the sort of the second level. I know the they say the mid market is really tough. Yes. But the second level is that still holding? Would you say? You know, let's talk about like paintings in the hundred thousand, eighty to one hundred twenty thousand dollar range. Is that what's that level like these days? Well, the buyers are very shrewd. You know, um, and, you know, they'd love to. You know, they buy eighty thousand dollar paintings if they're worth eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. So that's that's kind of it. Um, there's a lot more confidence among collectors. I mean, they're, if they get a um, from auction houses and things like this, I mean, they're they're not afraid to bid if they get a, a fairly accurate condition report on something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say um, I'd say that that market is, as I said, the market is. Things seek their value, seek their level, and seek their value. Yeah. If it's worth eighty thousand dollars, then you can sell it for eighty thousand dollars. How many If it's people, worth five million, you can sell it for five million. And how many people rely on solely on auction records? I mean, is that a majority of people? Um, no, as I said, most people are. You know, a lot of these guys, serious buyers, are pretty quick study, so they they, they start to understand the quality of uh-huh. the work, and that that's really what it's all about. And the right. reason why the business is fun is no two paintings are the same. Right. They really are. Um, now, when I was a, when I was really young, my father always told me always look at the painting first, the signature second. Yeah, kind this of is very true. That? Yeah, I do. Yeah. The work more. Yeah, because I thought I had a great painting when I was 18 years old, and I showed it to him, and he said it was a piece of junk. And even though it was signed, and uh, you know, he was right. You know, I was just looking at the signature then, and uh, I know a lot of people do that. They call them name buyers. I think that's what I've heard. This is very good. This is true. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully the name is uh, on the painting is the name of the is the same name. <laughs> a as real the, name. The author, yeah, yeah the, the, the painter. Yeah. Now I've heard that sometimes they're signed purposely misspelled because they can't be a forgery that way. Is that, have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, huh. that's yeah. I never heard that one. Yeah. Although I've seen forgers misspell. You know the name of the artist that they're forging. Yeah. Yeah. Now, whether that was done intentionally, I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it's you know, when you said it's an eighty thousand dollar painting market or something still there. It's there, but they're not. You know, they're they're not going to spend eighty thousand dollars for a painting that's worth twenty thousand dollars. Yeah. See, so that's how we come up with these auction records. So, you know, this is this is what's going on. They're pretty at this point. You know, they're pretty pretty well. Um, they're going to be pr- fairly well educated about yeah. art before they start throwing this kind of money around. Yeah. A painting you'd consider fresh to the market. Everybody always wants a fresh painting. Right. Um, is that? How do you get a fresh painting? Is it mostly when it comes up at auction, or no? Then it's not fresh anymore. Instantaneously, it's not fresh <laughs> because it's on it's on the auction records. Yeah, it's everywhere. Right okay, so buying it out of a house. Well, it's some, yeah, buying it. Well, I call them I call them first first generation discoveries. In other words, um, our gallery does a lot of restoration, and, and, and I like to buy things that have never 
touched. Never, and that haven't been seen, the, you know, all seen the light of day for a hundred years, let's say. Yeah. And I and I can I'm pretty good at finding these, or in a way, I'm better than just as about as good as anybody else. I mean, mm-hmm. what can I tell you? But that's that's what's exciting to me is that those that first generation of discoveries. Yeah. In other words, I like to discover them now. I don't, I, I'm not so fond of you know buying a painting necessarily that went through Sotheby's 15 years ago or 20 years ago mm-hmm. that went through um, let's say at fifty thousand dollars and they want you know hundred thousand dollars today or something like that. Yeah. Those the, those are a little problematic for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm a little bit of an old-fashioned guy in that respect. Now, you said you t- you're involved in restoration? Yeah, we ga- our gallery does that, too. Your gallery does that? Yeah, we do a lot of that. We, we have a very good staff. We, we, we have a, you know, the, the guy who started the um, conservation lab at Williams College does our linings mm-hmm. uh, for us. And, um, you know, we, 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 do, we do pretty good work, I think. Now, what, for relining... Uh, like that's mostly done if something's like this, the canvas is torn or if it's ripped or torn or the, the, the uh, paint is lifting off. Now there or, was a type of like wax relining. They don't use that anymore. We, yeah. we, we remove lots of wax linings for, yeah. for collectors and we you know use the latest state of the art kind of material. Now when that linings and this and that. Kind of when thing. that's done, do they have an estimate of how long they think that may last? Any ideas? Well, I don't. I don't um, an estimate, I don't know. I don't really care either because I'm 65. <laughs> I like that. I've heard someone use the term, it's a 200-year 200, 200 relining. Someone told me know. that they, once. The, you know, the English glue linings can last, it seems to me, for easily 200 years. I've seen yeah. these, these old glue linings. Yeah. I, I haven't seen wax uh, lining that's 200 years old. I don't think. Yeah. Maybe I have, but maybe it's been... I can remember any time I got a painting at auction and it was relined, it always sold for less than one that was untouched. No, it really shouldn't. If something's lined properly, it, it shouldn't affect the value at all. It really doesn't. Um, wax, a lot of people really do not like wax. Things it seems like that's all because, I used to see for a while. Well, yeah, because you know they're afraid that they discolor the, um, the, the, the disco- that it might discolor the pigment. Uh-huh. But um, I don't know. You, we do a pretty good job of removing the wax. We use blotters in the vacuum hot table to suck all the wax out and remove the wax on the surface. And, you know, so you know, we do that. You know, that's kind of the process. We do it, or any good resort can do that. You know, just remove the wax. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. website antiqueauctionforum.com please stop by the forum message board click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar and you can join in on a topic post your own website links and do a lot more thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show